Hey guys, welcome to our third episode, which is called The Creepy Killers. Uh, today, Candace is going to start off the episode. She has some amazing killers that she's going to discuss. All right, Candace, over to you. Well, India, there are some many, many uh, stories that were out there. Um, I can't, it's, it's a endless amount, I feel like, and... I, we're gonna have so many episodes talking about these real life monsters. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, where I'm starting off is New York, mm-hmm. a, a state that holds millions of stories portrayed in countless of books and movies, admired by the world as the city that never sleeps, the city in the center of the world. The history of New York is as colorful as the people that have passed through it, but not all was all gun, gumdrops and rainbows. New York has an illustrious history for crime and murders and has been the home for the world's most notorious criminals and serial killers. Are you ready to get into it? I am so ready. I mean, New York is, is full of mystery. It really is. Um, and you would think such a small city, you wouldn't be able to get away with everything that has happened here, but really a lot goes down that we don't even, we can't even comprehend how much happens every single day. Exactly. So I was attracted to a lot of the crimes that happened in the early 20th century and late 19th century. I don't know why, but I just think that time of history was just a lot was going going on with crime and murders and serial killers. And Exactly. And a lot was, I mean, it was able, people were able to get away with no pun intended murder because <laughs> because forensics wasn't developed yet and you could literally just go from town to town killing people when no one would ever know you know yeah so, and you know it, it lasted like for a long time yeah they didn't develop the technology so there was like a good couple hundred years where people were just getting away with crime and murder not being caught so i'm gonna start off with 1904 yes in tribeca new york (sighs) city you know this neighborhood right now is one of the most wealthiest neighborhoods in new york but there was a time when it wasn't so wealthy and new york city in general was a scary place So a muffled gunshot was heard coming from a carriage. The victim was a known gambler and bookmaker, Francis Thomas Caesar Young. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why back then these people had such long names. Yeah, they did. (laughs) (laughs) His companion was Nan Patterson, a famed showgirl who was well known in in New York and was specially selected for a musical called Floridora. Oh my god, so, I was gonna I was gonna do this this case for our episode too. I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like she was it was like the spectacle of the year because yeah. she was they were both well known and yeah. famous. So it was like it was like entertainment for everybody when this happened. Mm-hmm. So as soon as Young met Patterson, they started their affair. Young even paid for Patterson's divorce. Turns out, Young would never leave his wife. With his gambling addiction, she took control of all of his bank accounts. So basically, there was no way he could leave his wife or else he'd be broke. And the day of his death, he was supposed to embark on a European trip with his wife And that trip in the cab that morning, he was supposed to break it off with Young. Mm -hmm. So that was the scene. He was going to break up with his mistress 
and leave for Europe with his wife. Oh my gosh. And he was shot and killed. Oh my gosh. So the first of three trials began in November of 1904. Mm -hmm. And the case against Nan was strong. The revolver used in the shooting was traced back to a pawn shop where it was said that it was sold to a couple matching the description of Nan's sister and brother-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> oh, wow. That's their real names. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. yes. I, I found that amusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the couple fled the city before the trial, which is like red flags everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Um, despite the strong case against Nan, the trial was declared a mistrial because of one of the jurors suffered a stroke. And then the second trial began December 5th, but that was also declared a mistrial because the jury was in a deadlock, so they couldn't make up their minds. What? Yeah, this is... I feel like... I, I'm gonna keep going and then I'm gonna tell you what I feel like. <laughs> a third trial began on April 18th during the time between the second trial and the third trial, authorities found Nan's sister and brother-in-law and brought them back to New York City. The final trick in the prosecution's bag was the pawn shop owner. He was called to the stand and asked to identify Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was Nan's sister and brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. They walked up to the railing. The shop owner adjusted his th thick soda bottle glasses and denied ever seeing the couple. After hours of deliberation, the jury could not come up with the verdict. Nan fainted to the news and the judge announced she would not be tried again and she was to go free. Wow. And from then, she fell out of the limelight. She was never to like really be seen again. She kind of went under the radar. I feel like someone was like paying off these jurors yeah definitely <laughs> you know three trials and no one could come up with a verdict not even a not guilty verdict that's crazy so there was a lot of speculation um the defense i think the defense lawyer's son put out a book about what he thought what happened mm -hmm. they didn't know if it was murder if it was suicide or if Nan was going to kill herself and Caesar got shot in the process of trying to stop her. Mm -hmm. So there was just like all this speculation, but no one really got to the bottom of what happened in that carriage that day. That's crazy. Yeah, it was never solved, but it was the sensation of 1904. <laughs> Damn. Yes, it was the talk of the town. That's crazy scandal scandal now i'm gonna talk about some another one that is actually maybe a little bit more famous and it's a, it happened before the um nan patterson um crime mm -hmm. so edgar Allan poe you know how i love him yeah so the death of a beauty he said once said the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world and he was referring to the beautiful cigar girl whose unsolved murder inspired his detective story the mystery of marie rouget i probably said that wrong <laughs> um Mary Rogers was the cigar girl at Anderson's Tobacco Emporium, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure they made a movie out of this, too. Yeah, I feel like they did, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this Tobacco Emporium was the epicenter for New York City's social scene. Mm -hmm. It attracted all the city's young bachelors and emerging authors of the time. Though the tobacco attracted them, they stayed for the beautiful cigar girl Mary Rogers so she was like the toast of the town this this little shop girl Wow. there was an incident in 1838 where Mary went missing for a few days and caused panic throughout the city that something hap horrible happened to the famous cigar girl it was rumored that this was 
a publicity stunt hosted by Anderson to attract more customers. Wow. Yeah. It was long after the alleged stunt, Mary left the Anderson shop to help her mother in the boarding house she ran. And she soon became engaged to a young man named Daniel Porter in the summer of 1841. Uh On the morning of July 25th, Mary left the boarding house to allegedly visit an aunt. She never came home, and after two days, a missing persons report was filed. So, like, she went missing again. What? Yeah, but this time, authorities found Mary's body floating in the Hudson River. And that's when the story started to swarm. First, they thought it was her fiancé, Daniel Porter, mm-hmm. but he had a solid alibi. Mm-hmm. Some, some people said it was suicide. Later on in September, a group of boys found a pile of bloody clothes. Their mother said she saw her check into the Nick Moore house mm-hmm. with an unidentified man, and she didn't think anything of it at the time, but later that evening, she heard screaming in the woods. Oh my gosh. So she was probably having a secret affair. Any, like, there's so many stories, like, speculating at what happened to this girl. Mm-hmm. So in October, Daniel Payne committed suicide where Mary's body was found. A note was found in his pocket saying, To the world, here I am on the spot. God forgive me for my misfortune and my misspent time. Wow. Yeah. That was pretty sad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I felt bad at reading all this. Yeah. But as time passed, Mary became a symbol and a warning to parents to what can happen to your daughter in the big city. Yeah. That's terrifying. And rumors continued to fly. Um, they said Mary was a prostitute and that's why she was with that man that night. Uh-huh. Um, they also said maybe it was an abortion gone wrong and they got rid of her body in the Hudson to try to cover it up. Um, yeah. You know, it's so many um, murders that happen in the Hudson River alone. Like, we could do an episode. Based and how on... many bodies were found yeah, in the river. That, yeah, that come up missing and, mm-hmm. like, discovered in the Hudson River. Yeah, we'll definitely do an episode it, it is a It is a famous dumping ground. Jeez. Um, but I found... What was cool about doing this research, I got to go through the New York Times archives. Mm-hmm. And they digitalized everything so you can you could actually just go into New York Times and look through their articles from the 1800s and 1900s there was an article about this um, murder in the early 1900s and they were talking about how there was fingerprints um, not fingerprints um, finger marks on her neck like someone strangled her wow and just to think we didn't have any type of forensics back then that could detect that and it could have been easily solved like most of the murders back then. Yeah, like fingerprints, man. Damn. So that was another murder that went unsolved, unfortunately, but it was a famous one. This one uh, was talked about for years. Many books were written about it and movies were made and I'm I'm sure this is something that will forever be talked about yeah definitely so as a person my kind I'm kind of like a type a control freak person did um, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like these unsolved murders it kind of it kind of bothers me so yeah. I uh, I went a different direction for my my third one um, I actually focused on the murderer. Yay! Um, Finally, yes. not, a, not an open cold case. Yeah, they, yes. they are so sad because it's like, you know, people get away scotch-free and they've like did these brutal murders. It's just it's so bad. And then they die with yeah. the secrets that they have. 
you know yeah. it's, it's so sad but yeah I need some resolution you know exactly so we're gonna talk about the one of the most famous female killers she's actually probably the first one on record Ooh. her name is Lizzie Holiday mm-hmm. um, and in 1918 she was named the worst woman on earth <laughs> <laughs> by the New York Times. (laughs) She was born in Ireland and moved to the US as a young child. And this bitch, she was married five times. Damn. Here I am single, pretty normal person, and I can't get a date, but this this psychopath was married five times. (laughs) Yo, for some reason, guys like psychopaths. We need to do an episode. We should divulge yeah. into that psychosis. Exactly. Like, what the hell, guys? <laughs> we should have a few call in. <laughs> all the crazy ones have all of the good guys. <laughs> so out of these husbands, two died. One one mm-hmm. left her. And then she tried to kill another by putting arsenic in his tea. But he found out. And she fled to Vermont. And then she fled to Vermont where she married another man, but then disappeared two weeks later. She was off her rocker. And I'm going to continue her story, but you're going to see how much she got away with. I am, like, shocked. So she was later found in Philadelphia going by the name of Maggie Hopkins, where she was convicted of burning down her own shop for the insurance money and was sentenced to two years at Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. Damn, she had no shame. She was a serial killer (laughs) and a scammer. And an arsonist. And an arsonist. (laughs) This bitch was bonkers. I can't. I love it. She's like my favorite person now. She was filthy. (laughs) Filthy, filthy crazy. (laughs) So after that stint in the slammer, Lizzie was going by the name of Lizzie Brown. And that's the other thing. How is she changing her name so many times? (laughs) So she married a man named Paul Holiday. So this is husband number six. (laughs) Within the two years of marriage, the Holiday's home and barn were burnt to the ground. Lizzie stole a team of horses and sold them in New York. She was caught but acquitted of charges on the grounds of insanity. What? Exactly! How is this bitch getting away with fucking literally murder? And just, she's just (laughs) crazy. And she's getting away. This is amazing. (laughs) That is actually amazing. (laughs) So, in May of 1893, she was back at the Holiday residence. Why is this man letting this woman back into his home? I do not know. She has some type of spell. Yeah, I think she She had had to have been a witch. I, I would put so much money on that. Oh my god. Even oh my god. I wish we should post a picture of her cuz she yeah. looks like a witch. <laughs> Yo. She looks crazy. She was Yeah. Uh, this is crazy. So, she's back at this residence and then it was burned to the ground, killing one of Holiday's sons. Lizzie was suspected of setting the fire since she didn't like the boy. Oh, yes. And was sent to the asylum. And then they sent her to another asylum. But then that asylum declared that she was cured and let her go home. No way. Like. (laughs) So Paul Holiday, her husband after she got back from the second asylum he mysteriously disappeared that year and like the story she was telling the neighbors and authorities just was not adding up wait she got out of the asylum and then went back and her husband disappeared yes. 
I mean, she basically killed him and got away with it. Well, hold on, hold on. Before we jump to conclusions, oh please, she she eventually gets caught. So the authorities did issue a search warrant for the property. Mm-hmm. They found the bodies of two women that Lizzie shot that she that she met in Philadelphia and then brought them back to this house. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and the mangled body of her husband, Paul Paul <gasps> Holiday. Mangled? What did she do to it him? It said that she shot him, but she put him in the floorboards of the house. So I guess she had to, like, mess with his body for it to fit. Yeah. This lady was ruthless. Oh, my God. I can't even. So... Lizzie was charged for those crimes and it was held at Sullivan County Jail. She didn't let the guards sleep either. She refused to eat. She attacked the sheriff's wife. She set her bed on fire. She tried to hang herself and then she cut her own throat to see if she would bleed. Did she? Yes. Did she die? Jeez, when did she die? (laughs) They were forced to chain her to the floor for the rest of her stay there. Oh my god. On June 21st, 1894, Lizzie was charged with the murder and was the first woman sentenced to death by electrocution. But the governor commuted her sentence to a mental institution because the medical commissioner did oh declare, my God. declare her insane. So this lady never dies. She's probably still alive. <laughs> okay, okay. So the ending of this insane story. She was sent to the Medawan State Hospital for the criminally insane where she stayed until she died in 1918 finally but india don't get it twisted she did pull out one last murder in 1906 no she didn't in the asylum asylum, she murdered she murdered a nurse by stat by (gasps) stabbing her with scissors 200 times what a crazy bitch (laughs) (laughs) i just it's it's I, I don't want to laugh because it's horrible, but it's just insane how they just let her go so many times and she continued to commit such horrible crimes. I just don't understand how she had, um, they sentenced her to get electrocuted and she still got away with it. And then they sent her to an asylum. Yeah. And she still murdered someone. And then she spent her last days there. Like, they didn't then reopen the case and, you know, sentence her to She lived for 12 12 more years. What a fucking crazy ass. She's crazy. That that one was, yeah, that topped it. Yep. (laughs) That is horrible. Those are my psychopaths. So mine are pretty recent, like within the last 30 to 40 years recent. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first story is about the smiley face killers. Uh, I was at awe when when researching this story because it's still actively currently happening as we speak. Um, It started from the late 90s. The Smiley Face Killers are an organized group of murderers throughout the United States that specifically target young gay, adult, athletic, scholarly males, preferably in college. Um, They also profile the victims as outgoing and liking to party, um, usually stalking them before they kill They get the victims coming out of parties or bars intoxicated and alone at night. Okay, so I'm going to do a timeline of how each murder took Mm -hmm. place and where and then discuss the killers. 
Okay, so the first open case and victim. This murder took place in February of 1997. Uh, could you imagine? That's when New York was like the shit. Uh, if only I was not in elementary school then. <laughs> I know, right? So it took place in the Upper East Side here in Manhattan. It started out as a missing persons case and then ended up as a homicide cold case, which is really sad. The victim, Patrick McNeil, mm -hmm. was 20 years old. He vanished after leaving a bar that he was last seen at with a group of his friends. His body was found two months later, 12 miles away from his last appearance, floating down river near a pier in the East River near Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Now we know the distance between Bay Ridge and Upper East Side. He was floating for a while. Exactly. But that's the mystery. He was definitely placed there. There was no way that his body would have floated down river and no one's, you know, Yeah, no one saw. It. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the initial ruling for his death was accidental drowning, implying that he had stumbled off into the water while trying to urinate over the bridge. The detective on a case at the time uh, was Officer Gannon. Mm -hmm. He backtraced and investigated the incident and immediately knew that something wasn't right about the case. Witnesses informed him that a car with a couple, a male and female, were double parked outside of the bar. When Patrick left the bar, the car followed creeping inches away behind him as he was walking along. Oh my god. India. Creepy, I'm right? never going out again. <laughs> They say they noticed the car follow him down the block and turn the corner and continue to follow him. Also, the East River where the body was found isn't very easy to access. If Patrick did fall in, it would have been very difficult. According to the NYPD Harbor Patrol, they protested that it is no way his body could have could could go into the East River where he vanished and then end up where it did. So it it was definitely placed. Yeah, there. it doesn't like accidental drowning. That doesn't sound right. Exactly. And like, no. do, like, and if you think about it, right? Like, if you have to take a drunk piss, like, he would have just peed on a tree. Exactly, and people are like, he, it was so many other places, yeah. it's dark at night, that he could have just peed. Yeah. So, they were like, no, someone definitely placed him in Bay Ridge, and didn't float the distance from where he was last seen. Uh, within the next 15 months, there were two more men, same age and profile, that of Patrick in New York that vanished. The body of one of those men was found near the same area where Patrick's body was oh, found. Oh, hell no. The third victim was found in the Hudson River. Oh my God. <laughs> near 138th Street. This is why you never swim in our water. <laughs> Ew, could you? Ew. You know people go down to like the Brooklyn Park and put their feet in that disgustingness but no yeah mm -hmm. detective gannon noticed that there had obviously been a pattern in the cases and suspected that they had a profile killer or killers on the loose but unfortunately he retired soon after discovering this he was so intrigued by the evidence that he gathered that he decided to take the case into his own hands after retiring and bringing his former partner, Detective Durant, Durant on board to help him with investigating the cases further. Soon after, they discovered another report in the Midwest with similar cases to the ones that um, 
that they were currently investigating. They found a criminal justice professor and gang expert at the University of Minnesota who had took an interest in the similar cases involving male drownings um, that were occurring in the Midwest at the time. Together, they formed a team and started investigating across the country to all the sites where victims were found. They discovered while investigating the sites that there was graffiti art, specifically smiley faces and 12 other weird symbols that are that were later researched and concluded that the drawings were some type of gang symbols left by the killers. Mm. So that's where they get the, the name the smiley face killers from. Um, at the crime sites, the investigation team noticed and concluded that the drawings were some type of gang symbols left by the killers. At the crime sites, the investigation team noticed the pattern of how the victims were found near a body of water or on a bridge. They tried to retrace um, earlier cases that took place, the ones that were in um, New York, to see if the graffiti symbols were there as well. Mm -hmm. But too much time had passed and there was no graffiti found or it had been covered up due to just the time that had passed in between cases. Mm -hmm. So they weren't able to link them, but obviously they, they had a good feeling that these were all tied. Uh, it's been over 22 years between the beginning of the discovery, discovering these murders. Detective Gannon is determined to find the killers involved in these cases. All victims in each of these cases that the team have investigated over the last 22 years have been ruled as incidental drownings till this day. They've been getting runarounds from police in each town that each murder was. And it was, it's just sad because these victims had families. They were like straight, if not straight A students, they were definitely really good students in school. They were young, you know. Yeah. It's, it's just really sad. Um, the last case that is suspected to be one of the smiley face killers has been as recent as 2018. My gosh. So the killer gang is still out there actively hunting down victims. They suspect that it is a big organization of these people that are killing and they hide on the, the dark web. Um, they've, they've had a breakthrough where they got on the dark web, the detectives, and they, um, actually found a site that this group was like linking up to basically figure out where their next prey was going to be and for them to get into this particular website the killers asked for them to turn on their webcam to show their faces before they were allowed to enter into like their um their I guess like a group form mm -hmm. And they didn't do it because they were like, no way, I'm not going to, like, let them see that, you know, we're the detectives. But they definitely know that they meet on a dark web. They are profile killers, so they they know who they want to target. And um, it's just creepy. It's, and it's sad. I can't believe it's been going on for so long and they haven't been able to catch them. Yeah, and then it was another case where this guy didn't die right away. He was out with a group of friends and I guess he was walking home alone and he called his one friend and was telling her that he was really scared to stay on the phone with him and he seemed really just out of it in like in a daze and he was like, I think someone's following me. So she's like, where are you? Are you okay? Um, so she met up with him he was really, really terrified and he did not want to talk about what happened, but he said someone was definitely following him and he was like, I don't want to talk about it. Just take me home. She drove him home. Two weeks later, he was found dead or no, he disappeared. Then he, he was found dead. And till this day, she regrets making him like go file a police report. But 
he was definitely being stalked up to the point where he was murdered. Oh my god. Yeah, he was found drowned too. And I believe that case was also ruled as a drowning. Um, but yeah, that's sad because he, two weeks prior to that, I'm pretty sure the killers were stalking him and that's what scared him. And the girl, his friend, regrets not asking him more questions, trying to get more information about, you know, who these crazy people were. But yeah, he, he ended up dead. Well, it's not, I mean, how can, I feel bad for her, because it's not really her fault. Yeah. Like, how, how would you, situation. like, how would you know, like, this mm-hmm. is, like, your friend was going to end up dead? Exactly. It's just, it's one of those situations where it's just really fucked up. So, yeah. I that's the smiley face killer. I can't believe it's still happening. It's still happening. It's and they even the detectives, the two de- detectives, they even went on um, Doctor Phil's show. Oh, really? I didn't watch the episode, but we should watch it and maybe post post it. But yeah, they went on the show, like just trying to bring awareness to what's going on, and they they really think that it's it's different killers in each state, which is fucked up. Yeah, that means it's a huge group. Yeah, it's a huge group. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. Um, okay, so that one was a good one. So the next one, this one is, is fucking ridiculous. Like, I can't even. Okay, so next up is Joel Rafkin, mm-hmm. an American serial killer who is a New York native. Uh, at the time he was convicted of killing 17 women targeting profile all prostitutes Uh, he did his murder spree in the span of four years Mm -hmm. a little back history of Joel he was adopted by a couple in 1959 when he was just a baby he grew up in East Meadow, Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was known to be a shy, nerdy kid. In high school, he was part. He was a part of the yearbook club. He wasn't very athletic, um, but wanted to be, and it kind of bothered him. Um, he received the name the Turtle from former classmate bullies in high school because he slouched and passed and posture and he walked really slow his father was uh wasn't very nice to him he he wanted a a son that was athletic and like an all-around american boy and he just wasn't that um so that gave him anxiety and he was also very depressed because of that you know what note to parents accept your children for what oh my god for what they are or else they become serial killers exactly that's exactly what i was just about to say um so he didn't do well academically he suffered from an undiagnosed dyslexia disorder but he tested 128 on his IQ test. So he was pretty smart. He just, you know, I honestly, I think between his father not thinking he was good enough and being bullied in school just gave him really low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And also having dyslexia and not being like diagnosed. He probably thought something was really wrong with him when really he was just a normal teen kid with fucked up parents yeah um that's so yeah he also he suffered from the the depression which is honestly normal in this situation considering you know the life he was dealt um but at this point could you blame him if this isn't the beginning of morphing a serial killer i don't know what it is like you're being bullied at school you're going through growing pains puberty and you're a guy like which is already hard enough because men aren't raised to have emotions basically you know and i can only imagine so if he was born in 
1959. So what he grew up in like the 70s as a teen. Yeah. So it it's like what the hell? Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's really not easy. Um, his senior year of high school, his parents bought him a car. Uh, once he got his set of wills, he would he would troll prostitutes in Hempstead, NY, which was close to where he lived at the time. Mm-hmm. And then he would travel to Manhattan to do the same thing. Uh, Joelle started fantasizing about having sex with these women and then later daydreaming of raping and killing them. As you can see, he had an obsession for prostitutes. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, had a, he had a profile, so he was already kind of morphing into this a closet serial killer. He was infatuated with Alfred Hitchcock's movie The Frenzy, a depiction of Jack the Ripper homicides. Yep. Yep. And he found joy in the idea of strangling prostitutes. Uh, okay, so now I'm just going to go over a few of the victims in his murdering spree. This gets a lot. I mean, this gets a little graphic and disgusting, so bear with me, guys. Uh, the first, the first uh, victim being a woman identified as just Susie. Um, she was a prostitute that Joel picked up on a night in 1989. At this time, he was still living with his parents in Long Island. In Long Island. His father had passed away of cancer prior to this. Um, his mom was away on vacation, so he had the home to himself. He drove into Manhattan, strolled East Village, and picked up Susie. He bribed her with the act of getting her some crack and taking her back to his place in Long Island. There, he beat her to death at his place. She fought back, scratched, bit, and left wounds on him, but eventually she lost the battle with the ending of him strangling her to death on his living room floor. He cleaned up the scene and stuffed her body into a plastic bag. He went to sleep like nothing had happened and stored her body in the basement. The next day, he dismembered her corpse. He drove her remains to New Jersey, dropping off the head and the legs near by in the woods of a hometown called Hopewell in New Jersey. Uh, He then drove to Manhattan and threw the arms and the torso into the East River. Oh, my God. As for her teeth, he pulled them with pliers and jammed her severed head into a paint can. Also, he severed her fingertips. So now, she couldn't be identified? Exactly, and she was never identified. Till this day, Susie has never been identified. That poor but girl. But plot twist, plot, plot twist. Even though she was never officially identified, in March of 1989, the same year, a man was playing golf at a golf course in Hopewell Valley. Mm-hmm. He hit his ball into the nearby woods and discovered the head in a paint can. Oh my god. Imagine. (laughs) Disgusting. The woods where Joelle had disposed of some of her body parts, specifically the head. The police on the case released evidence to the public, noting that the body parts found were that of a female and a female had HIV. So, this freaked him out because, you know, he was dealing with a lot of blood. I'm sure it got all over him. But it was never said if he actually was infected with the HIV. Mm -hmm. He also had sex with her before he killed her, so who knows. Um, Fast forward to when he gets caught with the last victim. Joel ended up or ended his murder spree with a routine traffic stop in 1993. Two state troopers working the graveyard shift in East Meadow, Long Island, stopped his van for no for a no license plate. 
So this is how this fucker gets caught. You would having you no would think he'd be a little more smart. Stupid. He did not stop driving. And when they approached him, they had to like subtly chase him for 10 minutes before he finally stopped and they pulled him over. When they, when they approached the, the van, they could smell a foul odor coming from inside the van. So they started flashing their lights inside the, the van window. They noticed a body wrapped in plastic and bonded with rope. The body looked like that of a decomposed female, later to be identified as 22-year-old Tiffany Brescani. He received a maximum sentence of 25 years to life. In 1994, he got into a fight with another inmate serial killer over whose killings were were better. (laughs) Like, psycho fucking path. (laughs) (laughs) He is presently serving his life sentence today for killing these poor women. Well, yeah, I I knew about this one. Um, I used to live on Long Island, so there was a there was Uh, a few that there's a few serial killers. Oh yeah, from Long Island. No, there's a lot. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of. Like from Long Island in particular, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I could see why. <laughs> it's the, I don't know. It's not for everybody to live out there. <laughs> Clearly, it gets, uh, yeah, it gets pretty boring. Yeah. So uh, to the point where people just want to kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they bring their fucking killings to the city. They like trolling people here and then bringing them back to Long Island and then killing well, them. Well, I think he did that because he was trying to find girls that no one would be looking for. Yeah. yeah. You know? Same with Fucking yeah. Same with the other ones that I know f- oh, yeah. from Long Island. They always uh, killed prostitutes. Yeah. What's up with prostitute killing, man? Like, all they're trying to do is make a buck. Like, why they gotta hate on them and kill them? Oh, and another thing with him. Uh, before he started actually killing the prostitutes and he just, like, literally wanted to have sex with them, he would get robbed by the prostitutes and their pimps a lot. Oh, seriously? Yeah, like, they would rob him before he actually started killing them. So I'm sure that had something to do with uh, why he wanted to kill them. But yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's Noel. So the last one that I actually just randomly picked since we were um, on the theme of New York uh, serial killers. This one, Robert uh, Skullman. He's from Hicksville, Long Island. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, he was convicted of killing five female prostitutes. Damn. Yes. Between 1991 and 96, a formal postal worker. That's just horrible. You were, you were a government worker. <laughs> well, well, isn't it like a thing to go postal? It's like like a <laughs> urban myth that postal workers lose their minds. <laughs> Oh, we should definitely do an episode <laughs> on fucking postal workers. No offense to all the postal workers out there. I know not all of you are crazy, but if you some, you guys, you guys got a reputation. <laughs> uh, he went on a terrifying spree of murdering and dismembering. What's up with dismembering like women's body parts? I don't know. Jeez. Men are sick in the head. Yeah, um, so he was sentenced to, to die by lethal injection in 1999 for one murder he committed after New York State um, reinstated the death penalty in 1995. Mm. According to the New York Times, in a statement before the sentencing, Skullman said, I am not a coward. God knows I did not do this and that gives me peace of mind 
yeah he was he was bonkers his sentence was ultimately reduced to life in prison because new york death penalty law was not in effect mm-hmm. yeah that's what wow yeah, that's what um when he committed the previous murders he died in prison in 2006 uh what the fuck yeah that happens like it's weird with the laws and everything um yeah that's crazy yeah so that is it for our uh creepy serial killer episode our first episode on on crime on crime and real yeah real life monsters yeah these are these are like pretty scary and the fact that um some of these were cold cases and and uh bodies weren't found is very sad i feel sorry for the victims and their families uh they have to wake up every day and and know that their family members killers are still out there yeah like they get to live their lives you know wake up every day eat a breakfast have dinner normal and then go go kill someone else that for fun at night mm-hmm. like it's not a good feeling it is pretty crazy please send all listener stories to info at bdumpodcast.com